Let's pray. God, we thank you, we praise you for being a God who never lets go of us. No matter what we're, we're going through, what we're facing. And as we open up your, your word this morning, and as the images of, of our missionaries and their families and the people that they're reaching are, are still filling our hearts after watching that video and, and hearing about them and the stories of, of the ways that you're working throughout this world, God, we, we're just overcome with a sense of thankfulness. And we pray that as we continue to imagine the mission that you have for this world, to imagine our roles in it. God, we pray that you would speak to us, each one of us, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to hear what it is you need us to hear, to hear the challenge, to hear the invitation, to be the people that you created us to be. God, we thank you for this church family. We thank you for the gifts of, of each other. We pray that you would help us to be living reminders, living encounters of your love and your presence. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Sometimes in life, you just want to run, don't you? I mean, sometimes there are things, horrible things that, that have happened, and, and you, you can't think straight. You, you can't really figure things out. And you just feel like you, you, need to get, you need to get out. Maybe the doctor calls with bad test results. Maybe your boss calls you in and has a conversation with you about the fact that they're no longer going to need you and your role at, at that place of, of work anymore. Maybe, maybe you had somebody you were close to through a disagreement and a misunderstanding through anger and frustration, say to you that they never want to see you or talk to you again. Maybe you tried your hardest to do something, something meaningful, something important, and you found that you, you just didn't have what it was going to take, that you, you tried your hardest only to fail. And maybe you don't just feel like you failed. Maybe you feel like a failure yourself. And so you run because... It hurts to try to figure it out. It, it hurts to try to think about it. It, it. it doesn't feel like you can even stop or slow down enough to try to, to understand what, what might be the next best step. You just, you just want to get out. There are other times that it's not so much you want to run, it's that you feel like you need to run. Right? Those are the times that maybe it's, it's not that, that something horrible happened to you. It's that, that you were a part of, of something horrible that happened to somebody else. You, you did something that you know you shouldn't have done. You, you said something that you had no business saying. And you made a mess of things. You, you made a, a mistake that, that you wish you could take back, but you, you can't take it back. And so you start to think about, well, what, what are your options? And, and because you can't put things back together again, because you can't heal the things that maybe you've broken in a relationship with someone, because you don't want to have to face the consequences that you know you deserve, you run. You run as fast and as far as you can. And you hope that whatever it is you're running from, whoever it is you're running from, doesn't catch you. That's exactly where we find Jacob this morning. 
He doesn't know what to do other than to run. There's a part of him that wants to run. He's living in a, in a world, he's living in a family situation where he feels like he, he really has nothing much to hope for in the future. That, that someone else, his older brother, because of an accident of birth order, his older brother is going to be richly blessed with the deep and profound life-changing blessing of God. And Jacob is going to be left, because he's the second born, with, with just hoping that there might be something left over for him to be blessed with. And he doesn't want to be around that. He doesn't want to have to face that. So he, he wants to run. But there's also a part of him that feels like he needs to run because he didn't just have some sort of frustration about this whole issue of how exactly God was going to bless him or maybe not bless him. He tried to take matters into his own hands. And so last Sunday, if you were here, uh, you, uh, together with Keith, opened up God's Word and read that chapter of Jacob's life story where he doesn't just get frustrated about it, he does something about it. With the help of his, his mother, Rebecca, he hatches this, this scheme, this plan to steal the blessing that was intended for Esau, the firstborn son. And so he, he does what happens in almost all great books or stories or movies where there's, there's a con or a heist that has to be pulled off. He, he gets a hold of a disguise. He has this intricate plan. He says some things that, that, that aren't true. He, he pulls the wool over his, his old father Isaac's eyes and he manages to take something that doesn't belong to him, but he feels like absolutely should belong to him. And now he's having to deal with it because he moves so quickly and he, he's able to, to pull off this, this stunt to steal this blessing. And by the time Isaac, his father, figures out that he's been deceived and Esau figures out what Jacob's been up to, it's too late. We don't fully understand how this works, but as you read the story in Genesis, it seems that at this time, there was this partnership between fathers and sons, between forefathers and descendants, where when they spoke words of blessing that invited God to work powerfully in somebody's life, those words were more than words. They, they were binding promises of exactly how that person's life was going to turn out. And so when Isaac, who's tricked by Jacob, speaks words that were intended for Esau, he can't take them back. Once he shares that blessing with the wrong son, it's over. And so he, he tries to scrape together some leftover words of blessing for Esau. And he does. He speaks words of blessing over Esau. But they're nothing compared to the words he's already spoken over Jacob. It doesn't just bother Esau. It doesn't just frustrate him a little bit. It infuriates him. It enrages him. He feels like his younger brother, this deceiver, this con man, has taken the future that belonged to him, the future life that he was looking forward to. It feels like it's gone. And Esau decides that, that he doesn't just want to get back. He doesn't want to just get even. He wants to take Jacob's life away from him. If his version of life is gone, he wants to destroy Jacob's life. And all of us who, who live in families, all of us 
who have siblings or who have had people in our lives who are as close to us as siblings, we know the reality that it is sometimes the people we share life with the most who hurt us the most. That when they, when they take advantage of us, when they betray us, it's, it's not something we can just get over. It's something that at times becomes this life-destroying lack of forgiveness between us. And Esau decides that he's at least going to wait until their father passes away. But the moment that happens, he's going to take what's his. He's going to take Jacob's life. And Esau's old. I'm, I'm sorry, Isaac's old. Nobody knows how long he's going to live. And so Jacob decides he's not going to wait around trying to figure all that out. He, he's definitely not going to wait around to see if Esau, his older brother, if, if he's going to have a change of heart and, and suddenly forgive him. So he runs. He runs as fast and as far as he possibly can. He knows. He knows what he's done. He knows that, that he stole something that didn't belong to him, even though he feels like it should have belonged to him from the beginning. And he knows that there's very real consequences that are going to have to be paid for it. But he doesn't want to pay those consequences, so he runs. And because he stole something, even though it's a blessing, and it's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around how all that was working, it was something very tangible and real to him and to Esau. So he's a thief. And because he's a thief, what you would say is he's not just some average person who's disappointed in the situation and he's running away from it. He's a criminal who's on the run. Right? He's a criminal who's making a break for it. And that's really important for us to understand before we open up our Bibles together in just a moment. Because Jacob is somebody who's running from what? kind of, of punishment or, or difficult challenge he deserves to have to face. That's what he's running from. And so when he gets to this place where we're, we're going to read together in a moment, you need to be thinking, if you're God, what kind of, of talking to, what kind of lecture would you want to give to Jacob for what he's done, for how he has in, in a moment of rash decision blown up in many ways the connective grace that existed in his family, it's gone. Because he decided to put his desires and what he wanted above anybody else's. Sure, his, his mother Rebecca said, here, let me help you pull off this, this heist. Let me help you change things in your favor. But he should have told her no. He should have said to her, mom, no, that's, that's not the kind of sacrifice I would ask you to make for me. No, the moment that she says that she'll offer to help him take what isn't his, he's all over it. And so now he, he's running and he's vulnerable and he's scared and God's going to speak to him. And the question is, if you were God, what kind of speech would you be ready to give Jacob? Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. We'll, we'll read together in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. 
Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he laid down to sleep. Now, for those of us who are used to modern sleeping arrangements, this doesn't seem to make all that much sense. But if you imagine having to to rough it out one night on the ground, and there are all kinds of other things sharing the ground with you, it makes sense that you'd take any sort of advantage, any height advantage over the creepy, crawly things that are in the dust around your head to get a little elevation, right? To get, to get your head up off of the ground. So th- this, is, this is the best he's got. Um, and so he lays down, he's got nobody with him, and he tries to, to get some sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway or a ladder resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there beside him stood the Lord. Uh, Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you may notice that the phrase could be there beside it uh, or at the top of it. In other words, you've got to figure out what kind of image you're imagining while you read this. Is God at the top of the ladder, speaking down in his God voice from the top of the ladder? Or is God right next to Jacob, at the bottom of the ladder? And the reality is, you can imagine either way. I'm, I'm going to choose to imagine, because of the way the words are, are formed together in Hebrew, I'm going to say, he has, in, in Jacob's imagination, God has climbed down the ladder and is standing next to him. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I'll give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you. And I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I can return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Okay, so you've got this, this image or really a whole set of images that we have in, in Jacob's dream, that God gives to Jacob in this dream. And there's a reason that there's a sculpture of this dream, 10 minutes drive away from here. Right? It's, it's filled with images that capture your imagination. Um, and, and this sculpture is far from the only work of art where people have tried to enter into what is it exactly that Jacob was seeing? What is it that he was experiencing? What is it that he was hearing? And I am convinced 
that part of the background of what's happening here is that the, the storyteller in Genesis assumes that you knew, know more of the background than just what's going on in Jacob's life. The first thing that, that resonates with the early parts of Genesis is the story of the Tower of Babel, where all these people gather together and they try to build a tower that's really a ladder that they're going to use to climb up to heaven and throw God off of the throne so that they can be in charge of everything and everyone. Right? And as they're trying to build this tower, as they're trying to build this ladder where they're going to go from the earth up to heaven, God intervenes and disrupts their plans and confuses their languages and they're never able to follow through with it. It's not as if they were actually going to build a physical ladder that would allow them to do that, but he stops them from even trying. So when Jacob has a dream of a different kind of ladder, but it's still connecting earth to heaven and heaven to earth, it's really important that we understand that while the angels are obviously, they're able to go from heaven down to earth, spread the message that God has given them, deliver that message to whomever he sent them to, and then go back up the ladder so that they can speak again with God. God is primarily interested in one direction when it comes to this ladder. He wants to use it to join Jacob. And again, it's a dream, right? It's an image. It's, it's a metaphor. God doesn't need a ladder to get from heaven to earth. But he wants Jacob to understand that there is a connection. That God is willing to go to whatever lengths he has to go to be close to us. Now here's the challenge. We can be close to God's heart and far away from God's will. Because God is the one who draws near. We're either aware of it, we try to run from it, we try to ignore it, but we cannot cause God to come near. That is always God's choice. And it's always a choice that in Scripture God makes. And yet he draws close to people that so often aren't really even pursuing him. They're, they're not trying to be the kinds of people that he wants them to be. And in fact, that's when almost always he goes to great lengths to close the distance because they're getting farther and farther away from being the kinds of people God knows they can be, God hopes they can be. And so we can be close to God's heart and yet far from God's will. And, and I want you to have that image of God using this ladder to, to, to be there, to be near to Jacob, but I also want you to think about this reality, and it is not, it's, it's the part that we can get, I think, lost in a story like this. We start to think, well, I wish I could have seen that. I wish I could have been there to see exactly what he saw. This isn't just about a God sighting. This isn't just about God somehow revealing himself in a visual way, partial, but, but somehow enough that, that Jacob and the rest of us reading the story can kind of imagine it and make sense of it. It's not even just about God speaking, saying a few words to Jacob that we get to overhear. All of that's happening. But what's really significant about God revealing himself is he's not just revealing a part of who he is he's giving away a piece of his heart 
He's speaking not just any words, but words of unbreakable, unexpected, unconditional promise. Jacob didn't ask for that. Jacob didn't think he could ask for that. Jacob thought he had to steal that, which is what he's just been busy doing. And yet here, God comes close, and not because he's been pushed into a corner, not because he has to, but because he wants to, God speaks words of promise and hope and a future that honestly is beyond Jacob's wildest dreams. Because Jacob, on his own, his dreams are way too small. And they're way too self-centered. But God's dream, well, it helps him connect again to this global dream God has had since the beginning. And so it's not just about the imagery. It's not just about what we can picture or what we think it was like. I mean, I think it's worth your time to kind of Try to imagine what was it like for God to be right next to Jacob and be speaking to him. What, what was the voice like? We don't know. Was it a soft whisper? Was it a, a low rumble? Was it, was it a voice that Jacob seemed, seemed to know that it kind of sounded familiar to him but he couldn't quite place it? Did it sound like the still small voice inside of Jacob that he'd heard throughout his life when he knew what he should do and he ignored it anyway? We don't, we don't know. But it's not about the sound of the voice. It's what the voice is saying that we really need to have our imaginations caught up in. He sees it. He hears the promises. And then it's over. The encounter starts to fade away. And Jacob wakes up from this this sacred dream, this, this divine vision. And he says something that's really obvious. Right, but, but cut him a little slack. He was tired, and he hadn't had a good night of rest, and he was, he was anxious and worried. He says, surely, surely the Lord was in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. Right? Surely, surely God was, was here, and I just didn't, I didn't know it. And I, I think part of what's going on here is that Jacob would have never been able to imagine that while he's doing everything he can to run away from the mistakes that he's created, that he could at the same time be running closer to the one who created him. He just, he has no way to understand that's what could be happening. And we struggle to see that same truth in our own lives. When we're busy running away from situations that are either horrible, situations that have happened to us, or situations that we've helped make happen, we often feel alone and scared and certain that there's nobody else looking out for us. That there's nobody else that knows what we're going through. There's nobody else that knows how we feel. And Jacob's dream reminds us that even when, maybe especially when, we're certain that nobody else is with us, that we're alone in the dark and we're tired and we don't know what to do next, that that is when we can realize if we'll open up the eyes of our hearts, we will see that even then, God is with us, as close to us as our own hearts. But it takes work to see that. It takes faith, it takes courage, it takes hope to see that. Jacob has none of those things. And yet God finds a way to break through anyway. And even though this realization of God being with him in this difficult moment, has to bring comfort to him. 
What the storyteller in Genesis actually focuses on is not the comfort that it brings him, it's the fear that it brings him. Because see, Jacob knows why he's running. Uh, He knows that what he did to Isaac and Esau was absolutely wrong. He knows it was deceptive. He knows it was manipulative. He knows that he should have to pay for it. And there's a part of him that even though he knows that, that, you know, God, if God chooses to, can see everything, there's a part of him that wanted to pretend that at his worst moment, God didn't see that. God wasn't there. But now in this moment, he realizes that if God's with him, if God's always been with him, then that means that God absolutely saw what he did. And he's nervous about what's going to happen next. Because he knows what should happen to him. He knows what kinds of consequences he should have to face. And so he does what he knows to do, which is he tries to to get on God's good side in the morning. As soon as there's enough light, he thinks, okay, well, maybe, maybe I can make him forget a little bit if I, if I make some sort of, you know, monument to what happened here. So he takes his pillow and he reapplies it in, in a new way and he kind of turns it in a way where it's set up and he makes a little pillar and then he anoints it and he gives the place a name. He calls it Bethel, the house of God. Um, And then, for the first time in the story of his life, he says a prayer. Now, I'm not saying it's the first time Jacob ever said a prayer. I'm saying, in the story of Scripture, it's the first time he ever says a prayer. It is not how you would teach people to pray. Uh, it's It's not an approach I would... I would tell you that you should probably take. Because if you look carefully at the way Jacob prays, even then he's trying to negotiate and work a deal and work an angle. You shouldn't pray with the first word being, if. Followed by a then. Right? You don't say to God, if you do this for me, then I'll think about it. That's exactly how he prays. And it's because it's exactly who he is. He's always working a deal. He's always trying to get one over on somebody, even when it's God. So he says, okay, fine. You know what? If you do all the stuff you promised me to do, if you hold up your end of the bargain, then I'll worship you. I'll, uh, I'll be committed to you. And uh, if you bless me with a bunch of wealth, I'll even give you some of that back too. That's his first prayer. I would not coach you to pray that way. Right? Jacob is not somebody that when we we look at his his life story, we think, well, yeah, okay, thanks for the tip, Jacob. That's, That's not what's going on here. And yet here's what's amazing to me. Of all the different ways that Jacob is out of line with being the kind of person God wants him to be, it seems that God's willing to receive this kind of prayer, at least at this moment in time, from this child of his. Because at least they're talking. right? At least there's a relationship there that wasn't there before. While thousands of years have passed since the events of that night, The words of scripture, as they always do, have this ability through the the Holy Spirit 
to bring us back to that place and back to that moment in ways that help us be changed by that encounter so that we can see it and hear it for ourselves. And while we might, while we might not learn much from Jacob, I think if we're really honest, you and I are going to have to admit that we see ourselves in Jacob. Uh, I, at least I have to. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't bring a lot to the table that I aspire to. But he does bring some things to the table that I relate to, that I understand. I know we, we know what it's like to be running away from a mess we've made. We know what it's like to feel alone because we've kind of sort of pushed everybody else in our lives farther away from us through our actions. We, we know what it's like to keep ourselves so busy that the moment we stop moving, we fall asleep. So we don't really have to think much about where we're going or what, what we're making out of our lives or out of our relationships we know what it's like to bargain with God. We know what it's like to try to work an angle so that maybe we can talk in a really polite way, but we can talk God into giving us a future version of life that we really want more than anything else, even if that future version of life still really allows us to stay selfish and focused on what we are looking forward to more than anything else. We know what it's like to be like Jacob, at least at times. We, we may not be proud of it, but I think we're all honest enough, at least in the privacy of our own hearts, to admit it. And, and brothers and sisters, that honesty, even if you don't tell anybody else, if it's just in your own heart this morning, it's crucial, it's vital, because that honesty, that place where we can see ourselves in Jacob, even in his shortcomings, that's where we're going to intersect with the gospel in this story. Jacob made a mess of things. And I need you to hear this. He made a mess of things not because he wanted to receive God's blessing in his life. Jacob made a mess of things because he thought he had to steal God's blessing from someone else in order to get it. He made a mess of things because he decided that no one, including the God who created him, was looking out for him. And that painful but truthful observation is something very close to what we might expect God to have said as soon as he falls asleep. Right? Instead of some sort of, of ladder and angels and, and God being close to him, maybe you'd see a courtroom and, and Jacob would have to walk a long way and he'd feel like he's getting closer to the judge but he's never quite getting there. And, and, and when he finally does, the judge with, with disappointment and displeasure in his eyes says, you've really made a mess of things, Jacob. And it's your fault. It's all your fault. You cheated your brother out of future blessing because you don't trust in me enough to think that I have enough blessing for the both of you, that I have enough blessing for everyone. How could you think so little of me? How could you think so little of my ability to take your life and do something amazing with it? How, how could you think that? How, how could you get to this place? You know, I'm not sure you're ever going to be able to, to fix this, Jacob. I'm, I'm not sure that you're ever going to be able to earn the right for things to be better in your life. But I hope you've learned your lesson. And I hope you don't get a, a wink of sleep on that rock you're trying to make a bed. Right? That's, that's kind of what I would expect God to say when somebody who's running away from blowing up their own family, that's what I would expect. 
But that's not at all what ends up happening. And it's really important for us to grasp that because while we want the story to go differently for us, while we want to encounter a God who's not a judge, who's disappointed in us, but a friend who finds a way to go any distance to be right next to us, we all want that for ourselves. We have a lot of difficulty wanting that as badly for other people. But if God's going to have that kind of interaction with Jacob, and we believe that God could have that kind of interaction with us, we have to believe, we have to trust, we have to admit that the God we believe in wants to have this kind of interaction with all, with all of us who find ourselves in a place where we have destroyed everything that matters the most to us. God, in this moment, when he has every right to be disappointed and and to communicate that disappointment, he completely ignores, at least in this interaction with Jacob, he ignores that chance. And Instead of punishing Jacob, God makes promises to him. Now let me be clear, God doesn't make promises to Jacob because Jacob deserves it. You know that, right? God doesn't make promises to Jacob because Jacob is going to manage to be morally perfect from this point on in the story of his life. God doesn't make promises to Jacob because he's successfully worked on some kind of spiritual anger where, angle where he's reminded God, oh yeah, I did say that. You've got me backed into a corner, so I'll go ahead and honor what I've said before. None of that's going on here. God doesn't make promises to Jacob because of who Jacob is. God makes promises to Jacob because of who God is. That's it, plain and simple. And if you're reading carefully, you find that God's not making promises to Jacob for Jacob's sake alone. God is making promises to Jacob for the sake of the world. The future that God has in mind for Jacob's life is bigger than Jacob's life. And he wants Jacob to see it. He wants us to see the same thing. And I think there's a part of us that understands that if we can see ourselves in Jacob, if we can get to that place in the story, then we get to not just overhear these promises that God makes to Jacob, we hear these promises because God's not only making them to Jacob, he's making them to us too. These unexpected, unbreakable, unshakable promises of God, they're for us too. And I I want you to, to think in Genesis 28, what is the shape that this, this grace that we don't do anything to deserve, what does it take? Well, it's three promises that are, are comforting and familiar to us. The first is, I, I'm with you. Right? I'm with you. That's the first promise. And it's, it's a reminder as much as it's a promise. But, but don't we need those kind of, of reminders? Don't we need God to find a way to break through and to say once again, I'm with you? Jacob, I know you feel alone. And to the rest of us, I know there's times where you you don't know who to turn to and you're not sure that anybody really understands what you're going through. But I'm with you. I'm with you. The second is that I'll watch over you. Right? God promises not only to, to be with us, but to be for us. Not just to walk beside us, but to protect us. And, and not when, when God says that he's going to protect us, it doesn't mean that nothing unpleasant 
or difficult is ever going to happen to us again. What he's saying is that no matter what happens to us, no matter how tragic, no matter how difficult, none of those things that happen to us have the power any longer to destroy us. Because of the power of God, because of the power of God in Christ and the the resurrection, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the worst things will never be the last things. And that regardless of what we have to go through, God will carry us through. And then finally, I will bring you back home. And to somebody who's running in the dead of night away from a family that they've just blown up and they never expect to be welcome again, this might be the most important promise that God offers to Jacob. And and here's why it's important for us to see all three of these promises. Is that when you look at Genesis 28 and you look at verses 13 and 14, God's speaking words of promise to Jacob, but he's re He's re-narrating promises that he's already given to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. He says, look, I'm going to give you a place to call home. I'm going to give you more descendants than you could possibly count. And I'm going to help you be blessed so that you can be a blessing to other people. Those are our promises that Jacob's heard since, since the beginning he was able to understand language. He has heard his families repeat those promises. But in verse 15, God, in the dark, in the, in the darkest moment of Jacob's life, he finds him and he says, I have new promises. I have new hope. I have new grace for you, Jacob. And he says the same thing to us. I'm with you. I'll watch over you wherever you go, right? I'll protect you, and I will bring you home. Even though you can't imagine it now, I will bring you back to a place of love and welcome in your family. And these three promises, they, they become new expressions of mercy. They, they become new expressions of hope. And they're so important for us to hold on to because all of us know what it's like to be Jacob. But I don't know that all of us know what it's like to believe that these promises are for us. That it's for you. That God, through the power of the Holy Spirit in Genesis 28 this morning, is speaking to you to say these things to you. And God doesn't want you to to only believe these sometimes. God wants you to believe these every moment that you draw breath. And God doesn't make these promises because of who you are. God makes these promises because of who he is. And look, what what Jacob wanted, the dream he had for his life, it wasn't nearly big enough. It was just about him and what what he thought he wanted. It's how he wanted to get ahead. Maybe success or, or his life going smoothly or maybe never having to lift a finger again. And yet... God comes to him and says, you know what, I don't really want a life for you that's just a collection of fleeting moments of success. I want you to have a life where there's real abiding strength, so I'm with you. And I don't really want you to have a life where everything goes exactly the way you would plan it for yourself, and you never have to deal with anything difficult or disappointing ever again. Instead, I want to be with you through all those things, and I want you to learn time and again that I will carry you through those moments, that I have carried you through those moments, even when you didn't know it was me that was there, and I will always be there for you. And so I don't want you to just have a smooth life. I want you to have a life of real courage that you've learned how to have. 
And then finally, God says, look, I don't really want you to have a life where you don't ever go anywhere, where you, you never actually push yourself to close the distance between you and somebody you don't relate to, or you don't get on a plane, or you don't get in a car, you don't at least walk across the street to make new friends, to find a way to share my goodness and what I'm trying to do in everybody's life with other people. You're, you're going to have to leave your own front door at some point, Jacob. And I promise you that not only am I going with you and not only am I protecting you on that journey, but I will bring you back home. I'll bring you home. I'll bring you home with me. That ladder in that dream, it's not just in Genesis 28. It's what happens for 33 years when Jesus comes to be with us. He finds a way to climb down from the throne room of heaven to make these promises more than words and to help us realize again that God's dream for us is always better than the dreams that we have for ourselves. And I want you to hold on to that truth this week that God's dream for your life is always better than your dream for your life. It's bigger. It always includes more people. It includes all people. That God isn't just trying to give you the kind of life you want. God is trying to give you the kind of life the world needs. You have to be open to it. You have to receive it. You have to find real strength and courage and lasting hope in order to live that way. But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, find a way this week. Find a quiet place. Maybe go to Jacob's dream if you have some time. Find space this week to dream God's dream for your life again. Stop just thinking about yourself and what you want for yourself. Think about the world that Jesus came and lived and died for and the place in that story that you get to be a part of it. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their spouses will be in our church lobby and our foyer. They're there to receive you, uh, to pray with you, to talk with you. So no matter what you came in uh, this morning with, if it's a burden or a blessing that you'd like to share with a Christian couple, Please go out in our foyer and pray and talk with them as together we stand.